Blog Talk Radio. The Net Live is brought to you by the Spire Institute, integrating sports and education, training and learning, performance and competition like no place on earth. SpireInstitute.org. Now, on with the show. It's that time. We have the people. This is Eric Tonomoana. This is Priscilla Lima. This is Casey Patterson. The story in real time. We're a much better team now than we were then. I'm not looking at just this year. I'm looking at the next four years. You're listening to The Net Line with Barney. You didn't win, so you must not have done a good job. Peter, there's no better angle for sure uh, than the one from behind. Reeves. All this travel and playing and priorities have been really getting in the way of our relationship. And DJ Ruscha. I have a great size. It's the Net Live right now. Welcome in to the Net Live right now. Monday, November 19th. Thanks so much for tuning in, everybody. If you're getting this via iTunes, more power to you. We appreciate you downloading that and listening to it over your Thanksgiving week. I'm Kevin Barnett sitting in studio, and I'm joined on the phone by our co-host today because he's a guy we love to have on the show, Jay Hostick. How are you? I'm wonderful, Kevin. How are you doing? I'm good. Jay Hosack. Hosick, Hosack. I get to call you whatever. <laughs> Whichever, right? I got to remember. Listen, as long as I'm here and people can hear me, it doesn't matter. Call me whatever you Well, we appreciate you filling in. Jeremy Roche and his great thighs are sick at home. Uh, McGee is, as usual, taken up by Time Warner and the events there. I think until the Lakers coaching situation is settled, he's pretty much out of this program. We'll see when he uh, when he comes back. It'll be a It'll be a good day when he comes back to the program. I'm sure he'll have lots of fire and antics to bring. But we have a show planned for you today. We're going to have Paul Wenthold of Pablo on here. Pablo Fame, the inventor of said ranking. And we're going to talk to Paul about his ranking system and how it's going to come into play here shortly. Last week of collegiate volleyball beginning for the women and selection Sunday coming up after Thanksgiving. Pablo. Pablo. So we will speak to Paul, and we will also have the College of Volleyball Weekly. And actually, Paul is part of a, a new series that we're going to have here on the Net Live. It's the ABCA Coach's Corner. And the idea of, of this part of the show will be to provide coaching information for those that are out there who are high school coaches, college coaches of whatever level, volleyball people, and have them learn more about the profession. And right now we're going to use it to talk to Paul this week and learn about the ranking system and how coaches can manipulate said ranking system to their advantage because that's what coaches do. They look at the rules and figure out how to make them work for them. And so we'll we'll have that for you over the next year. And we're going to go off on a lot of different topics. I think a lot of useful stuff for you coaches out there who listen to this program. An opportunity to hear from some of the greats in the game. I think some of the folks who are involved with setting up the parameters within which coaches are asked to play, and I think those that are are working at making coaching a living. It's always interesting to me to talk to the people who are kind of in the trenches, in the middle, 
Uh, and, and, Jay, you may find this, too, when you're at convention, when you're at other places, and, and talking to the folks that aren't working with all the resources, aren't working with all the advantages and the support of a huge university with lots of dollars and scholarships. It's, it, I find it many times more interesting to talk to those that don't have those advantages. Yeah. Uh, going to convention is always, always a time because you're, 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 you're talking, talking to you. Uh, you know, coaches, you know, coaches from around the country, country that, that uh, not uh, only might have a job themselves, but know of another job that might have opened up, and uh, and that's always good for the young coaches. Uh, it, a lot of people uh, will agree with this. It's it's really a lot of who you know, uh, and if you're connected with the right people in the beginning, you can really help out your career for the future. So conventions a good time. Obviously, it's a lot of fun. A lot of coaches get together and and they hoop it up a little bit for a few days, but. Uh, it can really open some doors to some good career moves, and if you're connected again to the right people, they can steer you the, to the right direction to go, and it's it's pretty good stuff. Yeah, it is interesting to talk to those folks that they are in the middle of trying to build a program. When you're trying to build a program, it's nice if you're Penn State, Texas, USC, Stanford, Oregon, wherever you are, and you have a program that has a history of success that you have built or the person before you has built, and you have institutional support, you have a fan base, you have travel and that ironed out, that that's all fine, well, and good. But when you're in uh, a lesser conference or you're in the bottom of a conference, if you're trying to build a program up, if you're trying to make a program something else, if you're if you're just a couple of years ago, Jim Moore at Oregon, trying to make Oregon a powerhouse, or if you're Jason Watson at ASU, trying to change the narrative at ASU, or if you're Don Flora at Texas Tech, and you've just taken over, and you play in a good conference, and you're trying to figure out, how do I make my team a competitive team in this conference? I think that's where it's interesting, because a guy like Don Flora, he's not working with what Jarrett... Elliot is working with. No, uh, the same sport. But Texas Tech is a, a pretty big school. I, you know, I think a, a good example actually is uh, your boy Brandon Rosenthal, Lipscomb. They're they uh, are a small school. It's a mid-major at best. And you know, when you're working with limited resources, I mean Texas Tech. Don Flora, I knew Don from when he was at LeBron and played against him when he was coaching there. And he's really made a nice name for himself in the coaching community. I know he moved up a couple times to some D1 places, but this is a great opportunity for him. But you're right. I mean, you've got to change the culture, and that's that's what a lot of coaches talk about. I think it's what you hear Spira talk about. It's what you hear Coach McCutcheon talk about. It's, it's what a lot of coaches that take over, they say, we have to change the culture. If it's not already a winning place, we need to change the cultures here. And so, yeah, you get some great information there. Yeah, I think it comes down to being one of two things when you're in this situation. Either you're a used car salesman or you're a teacher. <laughs> and I, I think more often you're a combination of both. Yeah. But you had better be a pretty decent used car salesman if you're going to go from having five foot ten players to having six foot two players. This is true of coaches anywhere. Uh, I would agree. Um but I think you also have to appeal to uh, a certain kid that will fit in your mindset. For example, uh, it, when I was years ago coaching at Santa Cruz, I tried to bring in some bigger and better players throughout the course of the years. And one of the one of the frameworks that I tried to set it up around was is that you're going to be the pioneers of the new program. And when people look back on the legacy of when you were here, what are they going to say? And a lot of kids buy into that. You know, they're especially in the women's game. 
you're always, you know, thrust upon there's, there's 500 kids for every program and, and, you know, how are you going to pick and choose the best five or six kids? But there's also probably 10 to 15 kids that are above your level of play, so to speak. And how do you appeal to those kids? When you can mention another, uh, someone that you're a kid that I want for this reason and I think we're going to build around you, you're no longer fitting into a system that's already molded. You're actually a chance to be a trendsetter. You, know, you get to be a pioneer, so to speak. And that's, that's a huge deal to some kids. And so I think that's a, that's a tactic that some coaches use that are trying to make their program bigger and better than it already is. Yeah, I remember when I was being recruited, I heard that story from Andy Reid. He said, I'm trying to change what UC Irvine is and uh, come and be be a part of that change. And then I had Marv Dunphy, which was the guaranteed, you're already a part of what has been a great right. program. And I, I chose to go with the already has been uh, part of the program. That that I thought worked for me. But definitely that's a, something you folks need to sell to some kids is that they're going to come and build this program. Um, but, Jay, tell me about the, the yearly planning that goes into it. And, and this is the interesting part to me because lots of times there are great players out there, and you see this sometimes in professional drafts. Uh, but I think it's it's magnified in in colleges where you're looking at kids, but maybe you have a great middle blocker that's coming out, is a senior in high school, will be in college the following year, but you don't need a middle blocker, and you have to go somewhere else. But how do you manage uh, – perhaps passing on a great kid because you already have some talent there uh, to go after some other areas that you think are a problem. Or if you have kids you've already recruited for middle blocker, but you feel this kid is that much better, that has to generate interesting conversations inside the the head coach's office. Yeah, you, you know, you bring up a good point, Barney. Um, I will use Penn State as the example. We are limited to 17 members on the roster at, at any given year. Uh, and it'll, I, I thought when I first went there that was going to be a hampering uh, part for us to, to recruit from because, you know, there are maybe a few kids in each position who are really, really good players, and there might be, there might be uh, you know, a chance for a kid to maybe pan out in a couple of years, but you want to see him develop first. So for us, we can kind of – you know, pick and choose a little bit more of the cream of the crop, so to speak. But where where it is a little bit of a, a, a damper is that maybe there is that kid that's, you know, 6'7", six, 6'8", six, and pretty athletic but doesn't know the game that well because he just started playing. And I think that's the kid that we miss out on because we don't have the ability to watch him develop and not have him take a roster spot from a kid. Now, now there are coaches, uh, some that have recently retired, that their theory was they may not play for me, but if I have them, nobody else does. And uh, that can be a real challenge for the coaches that are trying to fill that roster spot, that middle blocker that maybe, you know, is a B-team player for the first year, but then might find himself on the court. So the way that I think most coaches tackle it, uh, you know, obviously you're going to look at your needs position-wise. You know, maybe I think outside hitters are always, uh, you know, number one on the list in terms of we need to get a couple each year in order for us to have some depth at that position. And if any kids out there are listening – I think, Barney, you would agree with this. Outside hitters are a dime a dozen, but outside hitters that can pass well are worth their weight in gold. And if you're a kid that walks into the gym and you can bang a ball straight down, that's great. Everybody likes the big kill. But if you can not pass a ball, it's, you're going to have a real hard time getting on the court. So, um, But anyways, back to the recruiting. Then you're going to start looking at your specialty positions, and you don't need five setters in the gym. You know, maybe you stagger them every two years. Maybe you bring two setters in one year after the other and let them battle it throughout the quarter of the year. So a lot of kids 
feel that, you know, that everybody's going to want to set it, but that's just not the case. They've got to find yeah. a good fit. And, you know, when you when you look into to that thing, then it becomes more about are they going to fit with the team? And I think any good coach would tell you, you know, recruiting trips are not only crucial to, to let the kids see what is there and available to them if they come to the school, but it's also a chance for the current team and the future team members that are younger on the team to see – how this kid's going to mesh with him, you know, and, and you ever watch the movie uh, Miracle, you know, he brought some guys onto that hockey team that were not necessarily the best players in their positions, but what they did was they fit well into that system and they meshed well with the guys on the, on the, on the rink. And it's the same thing I think nowadays is when these kids come on these recruiting trips, they're really checking out. Is this a group of guys that I can live with for the next four years, five years? Are these guys that I can go through the trenches with? Are these guys uh, going to push me across the net? I mean, there's all kinds of things like that. So uh, I, I think that's kind of the, I think that's kind of the direction that most coaches go. You know, maybe some are saying every year I want X, Y, and Z every year without question. We just don't have that ability, and I think a lot of teams are like that. Have you had some kids come in that just just did not socially work out with your teams? When sure. what's the, what's been the effect of that? Uh, <laughs> You know, I think I think the initial challenge is you want so bad for everybody to fit well with everybody because, you know, we, we consider it a family. And unfortunately, there are times when a kid comes in and, and just, for whatever reason, just does not mesh well personality-wise. And, you know, maybe they're um, kind of social misfits. Maybe they're, you know, too big a partiers. Maybe they're, um, you know, very cocky, whatever the case is. Um, I think the best way to treat it is, is kind of, it's just be honest with them. You know, hey, it's just not going to be a good fit from our side, and, and maybe there's a better place out there for you. Because you, the kid's going to ultimately be miserable, right? I mean, he's going to come in as a freshman. You know, if we lie to him and say, hey, we want you to come, even though the guys are saying, yeah, that guy's awful. We don't want him in our gym. He's, he's, just, he's a personality risk. And we lie to him just to get him in the gym. In the first year, he's going to be ostracized. The guys aren't going to want to hang out with him. He's going to feel distant. He's going to feel like he's not part of the group. And then ultimately, he's probably going to challenge. He's going to transfer. I mean, that's that's the way it works. So, yeah, I see a lot more transfers in the women's game, and, and maybe that's just because it's maybe because there's more more players, or because they feel like uh, they were stars before and they should be stars there, and there's more players like that. But it seems like transferring in the women's game is far more common than the men's game. Uh, well, there's definitely more places to go. Uh, I think yeah. that's probably more one options. of the main things. Like, and, there's, and there's a lot more levels to go. I mean, in Division One, I, I think you would agree, there's probably three different tiers of teams. You know, there's, there's your top tier, there's your medium tier, and then your, you know, your lower end just kind of, I don't want to say bottom feeders because that's a bad word, but, you know, the teams that are really not very successful year in and year out where coaches are happy to get some good kids in there. So, and then, and then you look at the Division two and three level, Division two, the top you know, 10, 15 teams in Division two are pretty darn good. And, you know, that's a good level for a kid to go to, and there's a little bit different restrictions uh, age-wise and, and professionally-wise. And so I think, you know, there's a lot of different options out there for kids. And I think it's easy, especially the kids nowadays, and especially when they're, when they're coming in so young to look at a school. I mean, there, there's unofficial recruiting visits being taken, you know, in ninth grade by some of these girls. How the heck are you going to know what you grade? Come on. I mean, let's be, yeah, it is ridiculous. And so – what are you recruiting them off of? Their really awesome middle school career? Well, especially imagine what the recruiting trip's got to be like. If they're coming in and they're hanging out with the team, 
you know, you're a 19, 20, 21-year-old girl that's, you know, looking for, you know, looking to hang out with your teammates, and you've got a kid who's 13 or 14 coming in the gym? Come on. How you, what are you going to have in common? I like how you just said looking to uh, hang out with the teammates. They're not looking for the next best party <laughs> if, if you're 21 that could contain alcohol because it's legal uh, at 21. I would know nothing about that. I'm just yeah. nearly going right here. And, uh, no, but it's, it really is. I, I may or may not have listened to a 60 Minutes about alcohol consumption by underage youth in Happy Valley. I may or may not have heard a particular broadcast of a newsworthy show, an award-winning news program here in the United States. I don't know if you're aware of this fact, but we are no longer the number one party school in the country, so uh, you might want to do some homework. Oh, that was uh, maybe it was This American Life, and it was last year that you were voted the number one party school. So uh, your school obviously on the way down if you're not still the number one party school. Make sure that the parents know this is the number one party school for your kids. So, you know, it's huge. <laughs> You you had some recruits come in when you were at Pepperdine. What was what were, were was every kid perfectly a good fit for you guys? I mean, I don't I know you don't want to name names, but was there a guy that you know maybe came in and you're like, yeah, not so much. Yeah, there was a kid uh, who was a setter out of Oklahoma, Bert something. I can't even remember because he was in practice for a couple of weeks, supposed to kind of challenge for the setting position, and then apparently completely wigged out and took a flight home, then jumped a flight back, got back to the university, but but still wasn't comfortable with what was going on, and somebody found him hiding in the bushes on campus. What? That was the story that I heard. <laughs> I, I can't even remember the kid's last name. It's hard to believe that it was uh, 15 years ago that, that this was happening. Actually, I take it back 17 years ago that this was happening. Uh, but he, he was apparently found in the bushes by another member of our team and uh, later returned to yet another flight back to Oklahoma, and we never saw him again. Now, uh, that, was, remember, that was when I played at Santa Cruz, and we played you guys. Colin Wellman was your setter, correct? Well, no, Colin, Colin Wellman was our setter at my second year because we had nobody else. We had J.J. Riley, who was a setter. Right. He, blew, he blew his ACL. J.J. Riley, now assistant coach over in Utah for the women yep. with Beth Lanier. <clears throat> and J.J. Riley blew his ACL in a preseason tournament in Rochester where we were just cranking. I mean, you had I was hitting outside. George was hitting opposite. George remained opposite. He's got a Hungarian guy, Peter, Peter Kodachi, outside. Colin Wellman was actually playing middle, which was interesting. And uh, Chris Jacobson playing middle. E.J. Yeah, CJ, now of Top Chef fame. So, J.J. Riley blows his ACL, and that's it. There, We have really no other viable setter on the team, so Colin becomes the setter. Chip McCall becomes the practice setter because he was still in town and, and available. And we go through a season with a guy who used to play outside, then was put in the middle when we lost a middle to graduation and then had to go to setter. Uh, and so I think we spent the season that way with Colin, or maybe that was the season before. Actually, you know what? I may take back half that story. I think, I think Colin set over JJ my first year, maybe. And the second year was when JJ was playing really well and blew his ACL. And then we ended up with Kurt Vaughn, 
No, not Kurt Vaughn. That's the wrong. God, Kurt. I keep thinking of Kurt Vlasic, but that was another player on our team. We ended up with a transfer from UCLA, whose name, whose last name is escaping me currently. Ah, I'm trying to remember who that would be back then. I don't. I do not remember. All I remember is playing you guys and calling with your center. And how sweet is it for a middle blocker to become a center? Because what do they always want to do in practice? They always want to set. <laughs> yeah, and they're always getting decked in the back. Hey, we, we could keep the time machine going, but I, I wanted to kind of get to one other topic related to recruiting and team building, Jay, while we have you. and uh, it, it goes to going beyond your current talent. I've heard this lament from a lot of coaches, and it, and it sometimes can cause some pretty serious issues when you have players who, when you join the program, play an important role. Second year, third year, they're, they're playing important roles. But then you recruit better talent, and kids are coming in as freshmen and starting and putting juniors and seniors on the bench. Because you're building the program, the program is more than what it was when that particular player was recruited the four years prior or three years prior. How do you go about managing that? Uh, and what kind of problems or success have you experienced with dealing with players who you have passed via the, the success of your program? I, I think that that all starts out with uh, the kid that you're recruiting that is going to get passed up in a couple of years. If, if you're always honest with your players, and you're always saying to them, look, I'm, I, you're recruiting, I'm recruiting you because I need somebody to push the guys up there now, but understand and know that in a year or two, I'm going to be recruiting for your position, and that's just the way it's got to be. So I think from moment one, as long as you're up front with those kids, that eliminates probably a, a large portion of the issue that comes up later. Now, I think where that issue does come into play is when you've got a kid that, uh, you know, is, is maybe the All-American um, and you've told them for moment one, you know, you, you're going to be our, our guy for the next four years. So there's this inherent knowledge that there's really nobody pushing for a spot. I think that's where the challenge starts to come into play. And, and, and most times, I, I don't think guys are really uh, upset to the point where they're going to leave the program. They yeah. know this is, that's the way it goes. Now, I, I haven't had, uh, uh, you know, experience with the women's side where a girl feels like they're being out-recruited and therefore, um, you know, it's feeling a little bit of the issue. I think, you know, that the phrase, as the tide rises, all the boats rise, comes into play. And as long as you can sell to the team, hey, it's better for everybody. Uh, this is how it goes. This is, this is what recruiting is all about. We're making the program better. I think you can have everybody buying in. You know, women want to be want to feel that there's trust. They want to feel that everybody is being taken uh, taken care of and that everybody's best interest is at heart. Um, you know, there's that family aspect that goes into it, and I think I think you can sell it like that as long as you're honest. As long as the team knows that you're not doing something sneaky, I think you're okay. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's like any relationship. Honesty is the best policy. And if your kid can't handle honesty, then you maybe recruited the wrong kid from the yep. beginning. Yep, I would agree. It's like anything else when you're in sales, and, and that's what you guys are in is sales, that you have to sell the kid on your program, on your staff, on your school, and you have to be honest with them about what that means for them and, and what you really think their potential is and, and communicate clearly throughout the four years as to their role. And, and it does change. It, it's no different than professionally, it, that every week, and I hear players in the NFL lament this all the time, 
Every week they're bringing in players on Tuesday to take your job. And yeah. you better remember that. Because the second you forget it, you're going to be out of a job. Well, hey. we, have, we have some kids that are overseas right now, and, and their emails back to us are, you know, <laughs> there's no real caring about the team in terms of individuals. Yep. They're constantly looking at you and evaluating you, and it's all quantitative. You know, there's no, well, he's a nice guy, and, you know, we got to keep him for four years anyway. It's, hey, are you producing? And if you're not, there's 16 kids I can go pull right now into this team. So. Yeah, unfortunately, with the professional teams, that occurs on a compressed time frame where if you lose, you win five matches in a row, you lose one, all of a sudden they want to replace half the team. <laughs> it's just, it's such a crazy mentality over there. I did, it's, it's uh, I don't know. Maybe it's the same here, having not played professional sports in the United States, perhaps it's the same. It doesn't outwardly seem so that the panic button is as big and as often used in professional sports. I mean, my own Philadelphia Eagles, they haven't jumped on the panic button, but it might be about time now. But in Europe, they would have jumped on the panic button from week one. Wow. And speaking of football, and I like how we are jumping topics here. That is, uh, you guys are not having a very good year. Uh, yeah, that might put it lightly. <laughs> Camp Kerr said the Eagles are screwed on the chat board. That's a little bit more blunt, yes. <laughs> They're not good, and I'm upset about it. Hey, you know, the only thing good for me is that the flag football Eagles finished number one in their age division this year going into playoffs. We're the regular season champs. We'll see what we can do in playoffs. So as long as the flag football Eagles hang in there, I'll be okay. And speaking of football, your uh, your son Max has the sweetest uh, sheets going on there. I saw the pictures on your Facebook page of all the old school logos. Oh yeah, I've got I've got the archive that we just broke out. So those are originals. I slept in those, oh. and now Max is sleeping in those, and and that blanket that goes with them. And I have another comforter that actually has the logos themselves on it. And uh, as I put up on Facebook, Max's question when he was looking at it last night, he's all stoked. Yeah, check these out. He goes, "Who are the Oilers?" <laughs> What's this Oilers thing? <laughs> so I have to explain to him that the Oilers are the Tex are the the Titans and the Texans came back. And I was just asking somebody from Texas yesterday why the Oiler name didn't come back. I suspect that the ownership, Bud Adams, owned the Oiler name, so you had to have a new name. But kind of disappointing, you don't have the old Oilers out there with the the oil platform or the uh, the tower on the helmet because that was an awesome helmet. That was a great logo for sure. All right, we have the Net Live here on a Monday. We appreciate everyone checking in. Chat board is active. Thanks a lot for being there. And, uh, yeah, bang on the Eagles. Thanks a lot, fellas. Jeremy's checking in there because he's sick at home, sneezing all over his keyboard instead of sneezing all over my house. We're going to have Paul Wenthold coming up after the break of Pablo. We can get Pablo explained. I mean, we're talking about an algorithm here. We're going to talk about algorithms and uh and prime numbers, and uh, I don't know what else, some uh, probability. It's going to be back to college for me, and, and you just heard of my memory, how shady it is of just the volleyball part, and that was important to me. I can't, I can't even really remember what, a, uh, what probability is. So we're going to get Paul Windhold to explain it and talk about Pablo because his, his rankings, this system that he started is, has become a part of the NCAA selection criteria. Very interesting story. We'll have him. We'll have the College Volleyball Weekly. And lots more great talk. Appreciate Jay checking in. It's uh, more Net Live coming up. 
You don't have to find the best college coaches. They find you at Spire Institute. Spire's postgraduate volleyball academy wants athletes. Spire delivers customized volleyball training and competition led by head coach John Hawks, athletic development with Michael Johnson performance, and educational options all in Olympic-grade facilities. There is no better way to impress college coaches and increase scholarship opportunities. Spire Institute, postgraduate men's and women's programs in multiple sports. It's not taking a year off. It's adding a year to your future. Sign up today at spireinstitute.org. The best college volleyball in the country is coming to Louisville, and you'll want to be there up close to take in all the action. Cheer for every point. Witness every rally. Experience it live at the 2012 NCAA Division I Women's Volleyball Championship, December 13th and 15th at KFC Young Center in Louisville, Kentucky. Hosted by the University of Louisville and the Louisville Sports Commission. All session tickets start at $62. Visit NCAA.com volleyball to make a date with champions. Volleyball Mag, the industry's number one volleyball magazine. Volleyball Magazine has been serving the volleyball community for over 20 years with the latest in volleyball news and information, product reviews, athlete profiles, fitness, health, and travel-related features. It's published nine times a year. Volleyball Magazine brings you the inside to the access to the sport's biggest stars. Whether you're interested in junior, collegiate, or professional level, sand or indoor, Volleyball Magazine has you covered both on and off the court. Visit us now. Do it. www.volleyballmag.com and subscribe for one year for only $19.99. Do that now and receive a new water bottle, a $49 value, free compliments of our friends at Naturally Energized Water Bottles Company. Volleyball Mag, the industry's number one volleyball mag. Back into the net live here on a Monday, November 19th. We appreciate you tuning in. Listen to a little Lumineers there. And uh, yeah, I know Jeremy today. 
So the music is up to me. I know Jeremy sent me a whole bunch, but in the haste to get started here, I did not have it downloaded. Kevin Barnett hanging out with DJ, uh, not with DJ, Jeremy Rochette, hanging out with, can you be a DJ, Jay? I could be. I, I could think, be. So used to I, saying I, that at this point. <laughs> hanging out with Jay Hostin, who has been our men's correspondent as well as co-host uh, for a lot of different shows here on the Net Live. We're now going to bring you, as part of the ABCA College Coaches Corner, the Coaches Corner brought to you by the ABCA. This will be uh, installment number one, and we're going to bring you a guy who is a volleyball enthusiast, not even a volleyball player, a guy who just got excited about the sport and decided to apply an algorithm to come up with some volleyball rankings and figure out how the Rankings could be better put together, and we're pleased to welcome to the Net Live for the very first time, Paul Wenthold. Paul, are you there? I'm here, guys. How are you guys doing? Uh, we're good. I'm sorry, okay. Dr. Paul Wenthold. We need to give you your full due here on the program. Yeah, call me Professor. That makes me feel better. Mr. Professor, sir. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, Paul, tell us a little bit about the origins of this, because uh, you know, I read an article that was in the ABCA magazine talking about uh, you and, and how this started. But for our listenership, let them know how a guy who doesn't play volleyball gets involved with creating a, a tool that becomes part of the selection for the top level of collegiate volleyball. Um, yeah, that's a, a, an interesting question. You know, I've been a volleyball fan. It's, it's interesting that, you know, I grew up in Iowa in the mid-'80s, and our, our high school never even had volleyball as a sport. They were still playing fall softball at the time. Um, but there was volleyball in the state of Iowa. Uh, you know, Bobby uh, Peterson, who was Bobby Becker back then, uh, was very famous. And, in fact, her grandfather was the janitor at my high school. And so I used to talk to her grandpa all the time about Bobby and what she was doing. Um, and then I went to school at Northern Iowa and uh, – she and I started the same year, and so I cut my teeth on volleyball, so to speak, watching Bobby Becker play at UNI. Um, and watching that, that, you know, they had good teams at the time. They were never nationally competitive or anything, but they were good enough for us, and it was very exciting uh, to be in the gym, and uh, in a West Gym volleyball game was ex- very exciting at that point. Uh, Roger Robbie Fard was coaching um, you know, they are having outstanding performances all the time. And so we just kind of got excited about it. And uh, and so that's how I started paying attention to volleyball. Uh, graduated from UNI, went on to other things in graduate school and kind of lost my interest. Uh, and then when I came to Purdue in 1999, uh, I just happened to drive down to Terre Haute uh, to see you and I play uh, Indiana State, and yep. this would have been this was actually, I think it was a Roger Robbie Farge 500 to win something like that. It was his last season, and Bobby was the assistant coach at the time, and this was the first time she and I had actually been introduced to each other. Uh, she knew who I was. I knew her obviously very well, but she knew who I was through her grandfather, and so we just kind of hit it off, and it just kind of got me back into the realm of being interested in volleyball. And so I started looking around and seeing things. And at the time, Rich Curran was just starting. Uh, and so he was getting things started. And he was publishing the, the 
Bellacora rankings at the point. It was Miguel Bellacora, who's from Michigan, I think. He was doing volleyball rankings, and he had his own model. And I had never paid any attention to rankings until I read his description of what he was doing. Um, and he had this probabilistic model that, you know, that it was based on the, the chess model in terms of probabilities of winning. And it really clicked with me. And I went home. It was a Saturday afternoon. I was in my office working, reading this. And I went home that night, and I envisioned this probability model that is currently the underlying uh, factor behind Pablo. Mm-hmm. And I had that in my head, and I started thinking, how could I do this on my own? And, you know, started playing around with Excel and coming up with things, and uh, it turned into what it is now. Okay, why name it Pablo? <laughs> I knew you were going to ask that question. So, at the time, this was back before the days of Volley Talk, we had the old 24-7 discussion boards. I don't remember if you remember those. Um but back then, you always had to put your name in, and so everybody was anonymous. It was it was kind of a running joke that half the people were anonymous of some sort. Yeah. But I ended up using, you know, a variation on my name, so I was Pablo at the time. And so I started throwing out these rankings that I was doing by hand in Excel. I was doing brute force type things, and I started putting them out on that 24-7 board under the name Pablo. And so they just started to be calling Pablo rankings at that point. <laughs> hey, uh, hey, Paul. This is Jay Hosick here. I have a question for you. With all of with all of the gambling going on in uh, college athletics, and and, uh, and now Vegas starting to just expand all over the place, has anybody ever contacted you and, and said, "Hey, we'd kind of like to get you involved in maybe creating some odds for anything going on in Vegas"? <laughs> so the answer is no. And you know, I would absolutely flabbergasted if people in Vegas were betting on NCAA college volleyball. Um, but, uh, no, nobody's ever approached me about anything like that. You know, if, if, if you look at it, um, these types of models don't always work so well in that sense just because everybody has access to them. And so, you know, if you look at, like, in sports where they have these things, you know, the, the football and the, and the basketball rankings, the odds pretty much mirror those things. And so, you know, the odds are set just at the beginning to, to, to levy the action, and the action just kind of mirrors or, you know, balances in and, and focuses on those types of things. And so you don't see a lot of differences between the predictions and what the odds makers come up with just because, you know, they, they have that information available to them. So explain probability. I mean, I, and for those that graduated school a while back and wouldn't understand how probability is going to play into how the system is constructed, what did you start with in constructing the system? Yeah, so what I, what I, I constructed, I started with was I thought, you know, if you take a team and you clone them against each uh, and clone it, and you put them on the court, about athletics is that outcome you're going to get is not going to be a tie. One team is going to win. Yeah. Even if you have fabulous teams on both sides of the court, one of those teams is going to win the event. And the, that they are which team has a 50-50 shot of winning that. Which team is, one team is going to win, but the question is you don't know which one. 
And that's where the, the unknown comes They are equal. They're not going to play with If they played enough times, went about the same number. And so that's where I started. So that's my starting point. I said, if two teams, who's going to win? It's a 50-50 shot. It's a coin flip. And you don't know who it's going to be. At the other end, if you put, uh, let's say, uh, Stanford up against the local high school team, um, you know, that's not a coin flip at all. Stanford's most likely going to win that match. And I always draw out examples of, you know, most likely uh, is, uh, you know, how close to 100% do you get? Well, about as close as you can get. It could be that there would be a, uh, all of a sudden there would be an earthquake that collapsed in half of the court at the same time and, you know, the, the Stanford team had to go and start playing the manager or something like that. Um, so there's a chance that the other team could win. It's just very, 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 very small. And so those are my two extremes. When one team is much, much greater than the other, it's nearly 100% that they will win. And when the two teams are equal, it's a 50-50 shot. And somewhere in between, um, when you play two Division I NCAA teams against each other, they are somewhere in between those two extremes, usually. And okay, so the so- question – yeah, go ahead. Well, I guess the question becomes, what's the factor then that you're looking at? What's the factor that you're basing your probability on? The, the probabilities are based on the fact that, and so this is where I started with the whole thing, is that if two teams play each other and one team wins, how do you interpret that result? Does that mean that if they played again, that team would win again or not? And, you know, as I just explained, it doesn't have to be that if you played one and one team has won, that doesn't mean that you would expect the, nece- the other team would necessarily win again. And so what Pablo tries to do is to figure out based on that, you know, if a team has beat the other, if were to play again, what would the likely outcome be? And, um, you know, it, it's not just one event that you have to look at the bulk of the entire season. So you look at a whole bunch of events and say, um, when they play, if they were to play again, what would be, what would would be the outcome? Um, But it's all based on, you know, what have they done against each other? So who won and by how much and where these are factors that now how do we interpret that outcome that occurred? Are we still on? I'm still here. Okay. Okay. okay, Paul, are you still there? I'm back again. Okay, sorry about that. I don't know what happened. I ended up disappearing from the show. So, yeah, so I'd, ask you, I'd ask you about the factors that were involved in in determining that. You said it was who won, by how much, and where. That, are there other stats that, that factor into there? 
and the, the other thing I, I guess I would add is, is when did it occur? Uh, matches that are much longer time ago are less representative of, of what's going to happen recently. And so recent matches weigh more heavily in terms of uh, determining uh, future action. Okay, so for instance, Stanford having lost to SC. What becomes the effect of that for Stanford, who's been good all season? SC, who's been a little bit up and down, but all of a sudden comes out and beats the number one team. The the amazing thing is that within the top 15 or so, no outcome is all that surprising to Pablo these days. Um, yes, a loss is always going to hurt you, but a loss to a good team like that, you know, USC is still top top 10 quality. Mm-hmm. And so it's not a major upset from a Pablo perspective. Um, I think, you know, Stanford, I think, did drop into second place this week. I don't know if they've been posted yet. So they dropped a whole, you know, all that much. Uh, but it's not going to be a major hit. And, you know, the key to Pablo and the most important thing to remember about it is that in the Pablo probabilistic model, if you play enough matches, upsets happen. And not only will they happen, they must happen. Because even if you have a 90% probability of winning a match, that means that if you have 10 of those matches, one of them will be an upset. And so this is the, the effect that upsets don't bother much as long as, as long as they're not all that common. As they become more common, they won't even be upsets anymore, and you just move somebody down and say, oh, that's, that's not representative of where they should be. Okay, so if you have a 90% probability of winning, you lose one out of 10 of those matches, you have proven the probability correct. But you, you are consistent with exactly what Pablo thinks you should do, right? Pablo doesn't see that as wrong. He, Pablo says, oh, that's exactly what it should be doing, right? That is, then, I have, then I have you rated properly if you lose one out of 10 matches where you're predicted to win 90% of the time. So that's an interesting difference when you say Pablo expects you to lose. I think that's different than when you look at rankings and you assume that, okay, the number one team should beat everyone. The number yeah. two team should only lose to the number one team. And the number three team should only lose to the two teams above it and so on, where Pablo actually expects a certain amount of losses to justify the ranking of the number one position or the superior position. I, I think this is kind of the sort of showed up in – the recent election results with Nate Silver's success, people started saying, "You're too accurate. You're telling us that you should be making error, you should be getting things wrong, and you're not getting them wrong." If if I weren't having the upsets occur, then my model wouldn't be right, and I would have to adjust things in order to to get a better model. Um, but yeah, so it's consistent with that. You can you got to be careful with this, though, because if you take it too far, you say rate everybody the same and it's a 50-50 shot, that's also consistent with the model, right? And so uh, um, the, the accuracy is very different from whether it's consistent with the, the predictions or not. So. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. All right, we're talking to Paul Wendhold, chemistry professor, as a matter of fact, out at Purdue University, but the inventor of Pablo, the Pablo ranking system. And, and Paul, when did you come to know that Pablo was being considered in the uh, the golden halls of the NCAA against <laughs> election time? Uh, this goes back when the NCAA changed some administrators, and I can't, can't remember the years or anything like this. Um, uh, 
you know, Kathy DeBoer had been in very uh, extensive discussions. And, you know, every year she was trying to mediate between the coaches who were very upset and the committee and trying to relay the unhappiness within the volleyball community. Mm-hmm. And and when they had changed administration, she got signs that they were going to be receptive to considering other things. So she contacted me, and this would have been, oh, 11, 2011, and asked to help them put a case to the FCA committee to try to convince them to start thinking there are better ways to So uh, I worked with her. Uh, it was the executive committee of the ABCA was very involved with that. I remember uh, uh, Kevin Hambly was, was doing that. Uh, Rob Patrick was very involved with it at that point. And so with I, I kind of just fed them some information and gave them some suggestions of here's you know our my perspective on it. And maybe if you come at it with them, they'll they'll agree to it. So it was, you know, beginning right after the 2010 season, probably around in there. Okay, so good. Volleyball people were getting involved to get you involved with uh, with what was happening. And and now, how much contact do you have, if any, with the committee and, and their use of the rankings? And and how do you think that has played out? Um, they've not contacted me directly. I I have heard indirectly through other people, um, you know, that, that you know, the committee insists that they are receptive right now, so keep bringing it. And they're pulling them off Rich Kern is what they're doing. They're, they're looking at the rankings each week, more or less along the way, um, is the way the, the impression that I'm getting about it. Um, I'm not sending them anything directly, although I actually do – have communications with people on the committee in direct, uh, through other channels and things like that. You don't talk about these types of things yet. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, I know people on the committee and we chat here and there about various things. I usually avoid trying to talk about committee things because I don't want to nag them about it. So. Has this made you more of a fan personally? Are you more invested in what's happening week to week, but then also in tournament time? Yeah, it's probably not. Um, it's, it, it, and it's not just, it, it's not this that does it. You know, my, my life is actually, I'm trying to juggle so many things right now um, that it's taking a, a, volleyball is taking a smaller and smaller part of my life than it used to be. So in that respect, uh, it's actually not getting me more invested. Although my attitude is, and I'm going to stay with it, and I, I, I think everybody, this is what I advise, is, I'll believe it when I see it. You know, I've watched a lot of committee selections over the years, and uh, I want to see to what extent they actually use the this new information. Um, I'm being told, and everybody's being told, yeah, they're taking it into account. I said I'm among the more cynical, I guess, but uh, I'll believe it when I see it. Oh, so you think they're still just kind of making making their own way and, and not really going with the other outside information I, being provided? You know, among the other things, I've been seeking a, a championship manual, and I know they just published it at the beginning of November, I think. Um, and the only difference that I've heard about, I haven't actually seen it myself, 
is that they have taken out the statement that says that the committee shall not use other polls or rankings, and so which means they're allowed now to use other polls and rankings. No, our highest disciplinary Did we lose you again? Yeah, uh, now you're back. You're kind of fading okay. out. We're, we're experiencing some sort of weird technical stuff right now. Well, yeah, it's, been, sorry. it's been an ongoing fight here at the Net Live, unfortunately. Uh, you, were, you were mentioning RPI there, and compare your system to the RPI ranking system. Um, RPI is, I usually describe it as winning percentage put in context. Right? So it's it's. How good is your winning percentage? But you put it in, you know, everybody realizes that winning, winning percentages are not all equal. And so they, the NCA has tried to put it in the context of the quality of the competition. Mm-hmm. Uh, the weakness of it, from my perspective, is that quality of the competition is measured by winning percentage and of the opponents. And so, therefore, it's kind of a cyclic uh, argument of, uh, you know, Teams with good records beat a team, play a team with good records. It doesn't say anything about how good they have to be in order to do it. And I think the best example of this would be if you tried to make an RPI in college football, and you look at the baseball and when they play a one double A opponent mm-hmm. um, or whatever the the football championship series now is what it is. But if they play that, you know you. Uh, a 1A school can play a very good 1AA school, at least from a 1AA perspective. They'll have a very strong record. But that, and, and if you use RPI, it would make the 1A school look good. But everybody knows you can't do that because the 1AA school is beating up their, beating, you know, beating up 1AA teams. And so it all depends on the quality of the competition there. Um, and so records can be deceptive. They don't have to be, and it's not, not necessarily the case. If we had a very good dis- distribution of opponents and everybody was playing all across the country, it would it would work out better. But uh, there's there's a possibility for being a little bit skewed in this regard. How do you react to people complaining about your rankings and trying to dissect your system and complaining that their team should be higher or someone else's team should be lower? Um, it is what it is. I, I don't know. I say the same thing about RPI. You know, as people complain about RPI. I said, well, it's RPI is really what it is. Um, you know, the one thing I contend, and I, 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 if there is any source of pride that I really have in Pablo, is the underlying model of how it assesses probability and the relationship to point percentage. This is something that, that Pablo does that is unique. Um, I think there's a real solid basis for this. And you can see it in simulations and things like that. And so this is not just um, something I made up. It is something I discovered, I think, is the way I'd like to say it. And so um, there's an element of reality underneath Pablo, is what I'd like to believe, at least. And uh, um, so, you know, the question is, is, it depends on what the objection is. Why, uh, Why are you unhappy with your ranking? Is there something that Pablo's missing that should should be doing? And if there is, I'll, I'll obviously look into it. But most of the time, no. It's uh, you know people just say, "Oh, why are they ranked so high? That doesn't make any sense." And I say, "Well, what should they be ranked? And tell me why they should." Um, but there's never really a good explanation for that. 
No, it's just emotion instead of the math that's behind your system, I imagine. Yeah. Paul, um, thanks for... Go ahead. Uh, do we got any more time, or are we still going? Yeah, no, go ahead. I'll, to... I'll throw one out there, though. I know, you know, and the one thing people have asked me over the years, and, and I think you hinted at this originally, is, um, you know, is there a way to manipulate your public ranking? Right. <laughs> and things like that. And this is one that I've really struggled with, and I've had a lot of coaches have asked me this over the years, and I've never really had a good answer. And I think I have one now, so I think this is time to, to introduce this. All right. Um, what what it looks to be, and this is consistent with what we've seen, that the way to get a good Pablo ranking is to have a lot of success against mid-range ranked teams. I'm talking, you know, 50 teams in the 50 type range, 40 to 60 range. If you can have a lot of success against them, um, and if you can have them heavily on your schedule, I can see how you're going to actually have a little distorted Pablo ranking. Um, there are some classic examples of this. And the reason I realize this is there's just a discussion on Volley Talk about the Southeast Conference and why is Florida ranked so high? Yeah. And I, I realize what it is, is that they blow out a lot of teams in that 40 to 60 range. And if you do that, that's a really good boost to your Pablo ranking. Um, and so it, it, it gives you a lot of, lot of, lot of boosts. Um, same thing with, uh, look at right now, if you see this week, Michigan State is coming out, is like skyrocketing up the rankings. I, I notice it because it stands out for me just because I like Cassie George a lot. But uh, they are skyrocketing up, and it's because they've been having a lot of success, and particularly when they play those mid-range teams, they, they beat them very handily. And so there is your secret to manipulating Pablo rankings. Beat up good teams, but not the great teams. You don't have to beat the, good, the great teams. Um, now, of course, the key to this is you actually have to beat them very, very handily and things like that. Um, and if you can do that consistently, sure, that'll help. But uh, on the other hand, you start losing to one of them, and that doesn't help at all. So that's a risk that you would take. Okay, so you heard it here first. If you're Brandon Rosenthal or another person right in the middle, you need to schedule those 40 to 60 range teams and just yeah. beat the heck out of them. Yeah. And you, and you really and you can load up on those. That's the way to do it. I I hate to admit it, but I, I what it looks to me is this is the way to beat Pablo. You know, it's interesting to me, Paul. We'll get you out of here on this, but I, I, it's interesting to me that you talk about Pablo like it's a person or like it's a, a another entity. It is another entity. It really is. Um, you know, it's there's an algorithm behind it, but it you know the. The math and everything like that is way, you know, way too uh, involved to actually look at it and be able to identify various things. It is a accumulation of a lot of factors all coming together, and it's this massive blob that just kind of all tries to work itself out. And so um, Pablo is, is distinct from me. It really is. <laughs> it, it sounds like a, a machine that's gone out of control becomes self-aware like Skynet or something. I, I worry about it becoming a, a self-awareness or beager is what I usually think of, right, at that point. Um, but uh, there was, the limiting factor is that I still have to put in those, those data. So I, I, you know, as long as I, if I don't put in the scores, then Pablo is uh, is defunct. 
All right, well, keep control of the machine. Don't let it go crazy and invent Terminators and start sending them out. I work very hard on that. All right, thanks very much. Paul Winhold, we appreciate the time you spent with us, and we appreciate your work for the sport of volleyball. Thanks for being here on the Net Live. Great. Thanks a lot, Kevin. Have a good day. All right. Thanks, Paul. Bye. Paul Winhold of Pablo checking in with us. That was uh, that was good stuff. I'm sorry about the audio, folks. The audio was just, oh, man, it was all over the place. And, Jay, we had to cut you off in the hopes that that would make it better. And At one point, I got thrown off. But uh, interesting stuff there. It is funny that, that he talks about Pablo as though it's a, a, a different thing. It's not part of him. It's not his creation. It's a, it's an animal that you put in the scores, and it, it spits out what it wants. Can, can you hear me now? Am I back on, Kevin? Yes. Yes, okay. I can hear you, Jay. Okay, good. Thank you. Uh, you know what? You're right. I was listening to that, and, and it did seem like he was treating Pablo with kid gloves. He didn't want to upset him. And so <laughs> it was, it was I, I, you know, I wrote in the chat board, you know, it's, you know, you need the companion, you know, you put him next to the toaster. But it's just, it's one of those things where, you know, it does. It takes on a life of its own, and, and after a while, you start to give it that personality. So, you know, I, I want to comment on something. Are we, are we going to a break, or do I have a couple seconds here? No, let's uh, let's comment. We'll go to break right before CBW. Keep it up. Yeah, I, I got a, I got a, he, he made an interesting point. He talked about uh, the distribution of opponents and about how teams play all over the country, these different, uh, different conferences and different teams from all over. And I, and I start to, to liken it to men's volleyball. And, and I'll, I'll you know, put it to the MPSF. Their schedule this year has hampered uh, a lot of teams from around the country to be able to play anybody from them because the, the conference is so large now. They only have four open dates. And so there's talk of the, the conference Carolinas coming into play and getting a spot in the, in the, uh, in the uh, national tournament. And the way that they want to structure the teams that get into the final four is that you penalize conferences that are not that strong top to bottom. But if nobody travels anywhere, how are you going to make that, that statement? And so it's kind of, it's kind of interesting The women's teams, they can do that kind of stuff on a regular basis, but you don't see a lot of men's teams traveling all over the country and doing, uh, you know, playing teams from, from all over. I, I think that was interesting. Well, yeah, there certainly isn't enough, opportunity and enough quality through the men's game to be able to schedule a lot of people. I mean, if you're in the MPSF, let's say you even you had eight open dates uh, instead of four, you might not spend time playing the Coastal Carolinas just from a team standpoint. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I, I think, uh, I think there's some talk. There's a, a team, I think Hila Hawaii is coming in uh, varsity status next year, the year after that. And, uh, that might be able to help out the MPSF split back up into two different groups, or maybe you'll see the Big West open up. Who knows? But I think it makes uh, a case for, you know, we need to see teams that go and travel across the country and, and put themselves in a, you know, in a, an opponent's, you know, gym, you know, 3,000 miles away. Let's see how they perform. You can't just hide behind the Iron Curtain anymore. Are you accusing California teams of hiding, West Coast teams of hiding? Uh, I'm not accusing anybody of anything, but I do like when teams from the West Coast do travel out east. Uh, there's been a couple of years where we saw teams like Irvine and USC um, and Santa Barbara make that travel uh, to see what it's like out here, and it's uh, it's a good thing. Yeah, I, I definitely think it's for men's volleyball to have more interconnection, have people playing each other more often uh, yeah. back and forth. It's definitely it's good for the sport overall, but 
uh, we, we don't want to delve off into the usual space that we go into. That the bottom line is, if it was if it was played on the same level that women's volleyball is played, if it was supported on that same level, and you had that number of teams, really, uh, if you had the scholarship, you have a extremely small system. Uh, yeah. I think it plays. So I think you'd have very similar interests. You have the same number of teams. You would have a championship with 64, and you'd have all the same issues because the athletes and the interests are there. It's just the support to create and utilize is not. Um, so I, I think you would see SEC starting to play. You would have um, all kinds of uh, different schools throughout the United States fielding teams and having conferences grow. It wouldn't be just about the MPSF. You are correct with that, and I, and I don't mean to be on a soapbox. I, I just I wish uh, I wish it would happen. I think it's a good thing for the sport all the way around. Yeah, I mean we we don't want to jump on the box other than to say we we think the interest is solidly there, and it would be honestly it would be a benefit to the women's game. We've talked about that because one of the benefits that women's basketball has is that it plays off the juggernaut that men's basketball is, and right. uh, you know men's men's volleyball would play off of that, and and it's not that women's basketball just increases its own value off of men's basketball. The presence of women's basketball, I think, increases the pres- increases the value of men's basketball. I think that they work in symbiosis, and I think you would find the same thing uh, if you had the, the two genders working together. And so uh, it's frustrating when I talk to a person like Nina Matthews of Pepperdine who says there just isn't interest in your sport. Well, I disagree with that. There's plenty of interest. In a matter of fact, the more interest there would be in men's, the stronger that would be for women's. It, it would not go the other way. It wouldn't take away from your sport. It would actually add to your sport's ability to get the whole tournament seated, get more travel money, get more attention from the NCAA. I think you, you could become more powerful as a women's sport at the NCAA committee level and structure level if you had an analogous men's sport to drag along with you. Well, and, and I, I think that statement she makes is absolutely false because her saying there's no interest in men's volleyball, well, there sure is a lot of interest in what we do on the court. And so a lot of those coaches are watching us to see what we're doing. And so I think that statement's uh, a little hypocritical if you ask me. Well, yeah, it's just not true. And if you take it down to the club level, we've talked about this, there are more men's clubs teams than there are women's club teams. I mean, there's more interest in, in the men's game at the volunteer level than there is in the women's game. And the women will always point to the number of programs there are, but the reason there's more programs is because there's just more funding. I mean, yeah. you, would, you would see just as much interest from young kids if the scholarship possibilities were there. If there were 10,000 scholarships every year, you would have a massive number of kids choosing to participate because while kids want to like their sport and they play their sport because they like their sport or they love their sport, there are a lot of factors that go into that. And one of the reasons kids play is because they come to high school and they've been playing as a youth or maybe they're just meeting the sport and they see opportunities. They say, oh, this could pay for college. And for a lot of kids, that's what basketball is, or that's what women's volleyball is, is a vehicle to get college that they want to go to paid for, and they enjoy yeah. playing also. And I functioned in a different environment, and a lot of people, there's a lot of focus on this show included, on the top levels of people who, you know, they're going to a school for the, the volleyball program in a lot of cases. Uh, but even if you get into the second half of the Pac-12, and I look at Oregon State, where I will be tomorrow night for a match, USC at Oregon State. You look down the Oregon State roster and read the bios and and learn about the kids. And what you find is a lot of kids who are in the volleyball program, they enjoy playing volleyball, but they are at that school for another reason. They are there for 
the veterinary program. They're there for the marine biology program. They're there for the agriculture program, in, in particular with Oregon State. They're there for uh, the right reasons if you're a, quote, student athlete, right? If you, They're there for those reasons. And, and volleyball is a vehicle that has provided more opportunity for other things. It's, it's basically a tool. And that's right. how a lot of women use it. And I think you would see men making choices to use volleyball as their vehicle rather than something else, if, right. if that were possible. And, and right now, volleyball is not a vehicle. It's just another bill you've got to pay. And so it puts the threshold to entry much higher. You know, that's an interesting statement you make about the students at Oregon State. Right? There's that commercial for the NCAA that goes off every once in a while about, you know, there are 100,000 student athletes um, in, in, the, in the country and only a handful of us will go pro in that sport, while the rest of us will be, you know, a doctor, a lawyer, uh, a teacher. And, and that's, and you're right, it is a vehicle. And, you know, I, I give, uh, I make a lot of challenges to, to women's coaches out there, uh, one of them uh, being John Cook. And John is one of the few women's coaches, actually, that I talk to that's actually for moving the women's season into the men's season in terms of the dates. Uh, and I thought that that was, uh, interesting because, you know, a lot of those coaches don't want to be second fiddle to anybody, but, you know, the, the, whether they're in that season or the one they're in now, that you know, it's either going to be basketball or it's going to be football. But I thought one of the, one of the byproducts of that could have been that you could schedule, let's say, for example, I'll, I'll use Penn State as the example. Imagine if Ohio State and Penn State were playing and, you know, you, you put the women's match, it can be second, it doesn't matter to me, but imagine if you had both men's and women's teams playing each other on the same night in the same gym. I thought that would be a real neat way to get some more fans generated and watching what, you know, what is out there for them to want uh, to see. And, and I, I think USC has done it this year a couple of times with their, with their men's team following. Uh, and I know some other schools have done it in years past, but you know, that's, that's an interesting idea. I, I'd like to see that kind of be a little bit more in the limelight and see if maybe there's something we can do. Um, it gives us a, a better option because, again, we're not looking to be 300 teams, but we sure would like to be a little bit more than 20, was it 27 right now? Is that where we're at? Something close to that. And, and really, let's think about the future of the sport and let's think about pushing the sport beyond and creating some great athletes. So if you get the men's and women's programs traveling together and playing other opponents together, I mean, you're basically providing an opportunity for the next generation. You're seeding, yeah. you're seeding the fields right there, buddy. Well, in Camp Hur, uh, on the chat board mentions that in Canada they do that, where the men's and women's teams travel together. And I think that's a real neat idea. I'd like to see us kind of kind of bring that back up in some conversations in the future. Yeah, we've talked about it, and we had John Cook on here talking about moving the, the season to spring. And uh, a lot of coaches, for a lot of reasons, say you can't. And one of the most often quoted reasons from some of these coaches is that, oh, you go against basketball, isn't that? Well, that's only true for the first half of your season. And, and well, first two thirds, I suppose. And then after that, the last third of the season, the championship occurs at a time where there are no other championships. Right. The men's right. Program, the men's don't doesn't get any attention just to lack of volume. But their championship occurring in the beginning of May, there isn't a single other championship happening at that time. Softball happens later. Bat, or uh, baseball happens later. You're just sort of in the middle. And there's well, an opportunity to really own that space and, and be huge. I mean, except for the Supercross finale that happens that same weekend. But other than that, there's a lot of space. <laughs> I, I knew you would bring motocross That's up. That's one there. hour and 11 minutes for those guys. <laughs> uh, you know, you're right. And But you look at it from another standpoint, 
uh, for us, and, and again, I, I know that every school is different. Some schools are football schools. Some schools are basketball schools. But in order to get a hotel room in this town during a football weekend, I mean, it's the prices are through the roof. You could actually save money as opposed to, uh, you know, spending more to have a whole team stay in a hotel that's in town. So, I mean, there's, there's, definitely, uh, there's definitely some opportunities there. And, and John's on to something. Yeah, I think you should rent out your house. Uh, we've actually talked about it. All right. Well, that's a good plan. Jay, we yeah. appreciate you being here hanging. We're going to keep uh, keep going with the College Volleyball Weekly coming up next here on the Net Live. Kevin and Jay holding it down. We'll have uh, Mike and Brandon coming up next. Talk about Division One volleyball because it's getting near tournament time. This will be the last week of regular season play, and there were some good matches this last week. The Net Live, right back. You don't have to find the best college coaches. They find you at Spire Institute. Spire's Postgraduate Volleyball Academy wants athletes. Spire delivers customized volleyball training and competition led by head coach John Hawks, athletic development with Michael Johnson Performance, and educational options all in Olympic-grade facilities. There is no better way to impress college coaches and increase scholarship opportunities. Spire Institute, postgraduate men's and women's programs in multiple sports. It's not taking a year off. It's adding a year to your future. Sign up today at SpireInstitute.org. The best college volleyball in the country is coming to Louisville, and you'll want to be there up close to take in all the action. Cheer for every point. Witness every rally. Experience it live at the 2012 NCAA Division I Women's Volleyball Championship, December 13th and 15th at KFC Young Center in Louisville, Kentucky. Hosted by the University of Louisville and the Louisville Sports Commission. All session tickets start at $62. Visit NCAA.com slash volleyball to make a date with champions. Volleyball Mag, the industry's number one volleyball magazine. Volleyball Magazine has been serving the volleyball community for over 20 years with the latest in volleyball news and information, product reviews, athlete profiles, fitness, health, and travel-related features. It's published nine times a year. Volleyball Magazine brings you the inside to the access to the sport's biggest stars. Whether you're interested in the junior, collegiate, or professional level, sand or indoor, Volleyball Magazine has you covered both on and off the court. Visit us now. Do it. www.volleyballmag.com and subscribe for one year for only $19.99. Do that now and receive a new water bottle, a $49 value, free compliments of our friends at Naturally Energized Water Bottle Company. Volleyball Mag, the industry's number one volleyball mag.
Welcome back into the net live. Kevin Barnett playing a little Imagine Dragons. That's right. For those that don't know who that is, that's Imagine Dragons. They're going big right now. A little bit like Coldplay if you're on the chat board. Already got all that information. But uh, hanging out here, Jay Hosick's been kind enough to sit in all day as DJ Jeremy Roche sneezes all over his keyboard and just put viruses all over the, the place in his own house, not my house. So thanks a lot for tuning in. We are pleased to have Paul Wenthold of Pablo join us and give us a little information about about Pablo, who uh, is an individual person. Really ought to have like an avatar. Uh, I think he, uh, he needs to be a uh, Hal, Hal 9000 something. I can't do that, Paul. <laughs> All right. Let's get our usual segment underway here. Since Jeremy's not here, we don't have any music. We just have me, so I'll have to power it in association with the AVCA. And that live is proud each week to present the College Volleyball Weekly, the best of what was and a preview of what will be in the world of college volleyball. It's coming down for the women here. Time for three left to go speak before... Past week, our correspondent Brad and Mike. On time, hopefully the sound holds up. Gentlemen, welcome in. And Mike, I want to start with you. And this Southern Stanford is huge. And really, Southern Cal only lost one set by two. Otherwise, two. Yeah, you're cutting out, Kevin, but I think I got your question. Yeah, USC dominated all four sets. They were actually up 24-20 in the third set before Stanford made a great comeback to end up winning the third set. And it's gonna. I think we really need to talk about this week is the NCAA shows on Sunday and what this does to RPI because I think the first three, Stanford, Penn State, and Texas, they're pretty clear. I think the number four seed through the next group is going to be you know, very interesting to see how they do it. And we have to look at some teams like Washington and SC will both move up. They were 13th and 14th in RPI. Last week, but Washington's win over Oregon was just amazing. They overcame like about 10 match points, and Krista Van Zant went down the fourth game with an ankle injury, and they pulled out Oregon in five. And then you have to look at you know the USC win, but like a school like Hawaii, when you talk about their 18th in RPI with the NCAA, because they don't want to spend the money of sending teams over to Hawaii, even though they're ranked eighth in the country in the ABCA poll this week, would they not let them host the first and second round? Those are my issues for this week. Well, Brandon feels about the same way. Like a team like Western Kentucky, which had a great year, they're only 30th in RPI. Brandon? Yeah, you know, I think what it all boils down to, and we saw a little bit of this last year, we were kind of uh, right in the midst of it. In that last weekend, you know, there was a big kind of – uh, Kentucky and Texas A&M were 16-17, and, and ultimately uh, Texas A&M came up with a big win over Iowa State. And so what looked like one pod was already kind of set actually moved a whole pod to Texas A&M, which uh, you know, made things a lot more difficult travel-wise for three teams. So, um you know, it'll be interesting. I think, like Mike said, I mean, any time you enter into this year, you know, you get into that realm and, you know, what we've been, exp- you know, told about the the uh, selection is that, you know, they're really trying to give those top 16 teams uh, the advantage of hosting. So it uh, it should be interesting to see maybe who kind of gets left out, you know, as 17, uh, you know, as we get through this final weekend. And there's definitely some big matches that can make all that happen. Brandon, I had an opportunity to go down this week to Texas and do a match down there, Texas, Texas Tech. 
but in talking with Sullivan, Eric Sullivan, the assistant coach there, about his conference, uh, you know, he was he was kind of upset that his conference doesn't get more respect. And, it, you know, the Big 12, he said, look, we have good teams down here. We may have lost Nebraska, but we have Iowa State's good, K-State's good. They had to face off against one another uh, this week with uh, Iowa State coming out on top 3-1. But he said, look, there are quality teams in this conference. Do you think that there are other conferences out there that don't get enough respect? And does the Big Big uh, 12 get enough respect? I think the Big 12 does get enough respect. I think you take a look at like a Kansas State who's 8 and 7 in the Big 12. I think it's hard to really get behind uh you know something like that. You know, there's no doubt Texas is good and there's no doubt Iowa State is good. Uh you know, really the team after that that everybody should be probably talking about is Kansas and Kansas won uh both their matches against Kansas State. So I think there's definitely some teams, you know, it's kind of like uh you know, you've got the Big 12 and then you probably have got some room for arguments out of the uh West Coast Conference and well, and yep, you know yep. And then, you know, the other conference really in the mix right now is the ACC. So uh, you're always, from year to year, going to have some uh, conferences that kind of complain about that. Uh, again, there's no doubt the Big 12 is a good teams, But, you know, Oklahoma is not the team that they've been in the past. You have West Virginia that's kind of at the bottom. Um, you know, just going up and down the list, Texas Tech is just, Again, in the mix, but not really a factor. So, you know, the loss of Nebraska is huge, and, and you shouldn't under underplay that. Uh, I think it's just this year, hey, the Big 12, I don't, in my eyes, don't believe it's as strong as uh, some of these other conferences. And, uh, you know, I'll be interested to see. Here, here's a, a, a conference comparison I would like to see is Big 12 versus the ACC. Again, if you take out Texas and the Big 12, I'll be interested to see what those next uh, group of schools uh, do. And then include the SEC because you lost uh, you know, Texas A&M uh, to the SEC. Right, the other thing, Brent, and I think also in Kevin, you have to look at what's amazing about the RPI. Kansas is right now into this week in the RPI they were, believe it or not, number seven in the country. And yeah. it's crazy to me because in non-conference they got beat by Arkansas, who's okay, and Notre Dame, who's okay. But in, even in the league, they, got a, they have a league loss to Baylor. And, you know, you just sit there. I know they went five with Texas, but they're not the number seven team in the country, in my opinion. But if you go by RPI, they're going to be home for two rounds of the NCAA tournament. They should beat St. Louis. They should beat Texas Tech this weekend. So they're going to end up end up the season with two more wins and end up, you know, 25 and 6 or 27, you know, 25 and 6 and, you know, I, I mean, if I'm a team and I'm just outside the top, you know, 16, maybe like, a, you know, again, going back in conferences of Miami or North Carolina, I wouldn't mind at all having to go the first two rounds and go to Kansas. Number one, Penn State remains so, or pardon me, <coughs> was number two. They move up to number one. Stanford drops down to number two. Texas three, Southern Cal four, Washington five, Oregon six, UCLA seven, Hawaii, Louisville, Nebraska are your top ten. And uh, <coughs> I wonder about Penn State going back to the top of ranking here because they defeated Indiana, who's unranked. They defeated number 21, Purdue. But if you look at a team uh, like USC with the win this week, I mean, they beat Cal. And they also beat number one Stanford 
Uh, I mean, there's some arguments to be made for teams that are beating better ranked opponents and then even better unranked opponents, yet not really making huge moves inside the the coaches' ranking. Well, here's the argument: is that who's going to get the other number one seat? Do you give it to Nebraska, the number two team in the Big Ten, or do you give it to Oregon, SC, UCLA, Washington, the number two team in the Pac-10? Because one of those teams is going to be four, and one of them is probably going to be five, and they're probably going to end up at Nebraska, Omaha is what my guess is going to be. Because I don't see anybody else you know, being a top-four seed other than either the second-place team in the Pac-12 or the second-place team you know, in the Big Ten. And that's going to be very interesting. The other team that's really good in RPI, Louisville, keeps moving up. The Louisville is going to be a, you know, potentially – they're not that far out of being a number-one seed based on their RPI either. Yeah, our, uh, Louisville is at 27-3, and three, and they have been steadily climbing through that top 25. I mean, they did go five with Texas, and you know, they've, they've, had a, they've had a really good non-conference schedule. Yeah, I had an opportunity to see Texas this week. And, uh, and Brandon, maybe you can answer this question. The question came up on the broadcast, who are or who is the best pair of outsiders out there? When you look at Haley and Bailey down there, Haley Eckerman and and Bailey Webster at Texas, the only other one I come up with is Mike's pair there with Love and Kidder. Uh, But do you you have somebody else, or or who do you think is better out of those two? Because I think those are probably the top two. Yeah, I mean, I think that they're obviously some of the more physical ones. You know, you've got to take a look at maybe what uh, Penn State's got going on there uh, with Deja and uh, gosh, I'm drawing a blank right now. But Ariel Scott. Um, Ariel Scott. Yeah, Ariel Scott. That's probably nobody can think of Scott. Yeah, I mean, that's probably a top <laughs> pair. I mean. Obviously, when you talk about Stanford, I mean, I think they've got a pretty good group there, too. Uh, you know, albeit young, but uh, a very good group as well. So, Yeah, Howard um, Burgess are really good. Mancuso and Worth at, at Nebraska are very strong also. Yeah, so, I mean, <clears throat> if you watch Worth, I mean, Worth, you know, Mike brings up a great person in Worth. Worth is an absolute workhorse. Uh, this is a kid that, you know, I've enjoyed watching on TV, just kind of rolls up her sleeves and says, hey, let's go at it. And, uh, you know, it's fun to watch them. Mike, how about Oregon's chances here? They started the season so hot, climbed all the way up to, you know, number two and, and battled it out with Stanford, and, and they were in, uh, seemed to have taken a whole other step. But they've played a lot of close matches. They had another 3-2 loss again to Washington. How do you like their chances in the tournament? I think their real key is they need to beat UCLA tomorrow night in Eugene. It's on the Pac-12 network. And I think that win will propel them into a number two seed nationally and give them a shot to at least make the Sweet 16 and then goes. I just think that once you hit the final 16 teams, that it becomes much more wide open and it becomes more like Brandon and I have talked about, about matchups and styles. Because right now... Stanford can be anybody given day. They're, they're playing so well with their, their four young freshmen have really come along strong. Penn State's playing outstanding volleyball in Texas. But then after those three, it's who's going to get hot. I mean, you got a Louisville team playing real well right now. Hawaii hasn't been tested, but they got Corson back, and they're playing much better. They, you know, UCLA on a given night, I mean, they played really well against Cal, and they got played Stanford in a tough match. USC is playing as well as anybody. USC last year peaked in the last part of the season, got all the way to the semifinals and may have won without those travel conditions, you know, last year. And Mick Haley's got them going real well, but USC and UCLA play Friday at UCLA. And those 
matches the Oregon UCLA and UCLA SC is going to have a lot to do with the NCAA committee in those final seedings and final brackets because you'd figure Stanford's going to be at Cal Berkeley right now and you figure they're going to get one or two Pac-12 teams and they could get BYU which lost to San Diego in five and San Diego they're, they're battling for, for a seed right now and they're right there. I like how Mike's matches he just picked both include UCLA as being important. I, I agree. I just think it's funny. Uh, it just happens to be that way, Kevin. It does happen. Shocker. That's accurate. Hey, Brandon, I want to ask you this because we've spent so much time talking about top 25, and we occasionally get to talking about teams who are just outside the top 25. But there's a whole bunch of other teams out there when you're when you're fielding a, a field of 64. And is there somebody outside the top 25 you think can honestly make a move and really make a difference in the tournament, maybe go 16 or 8, and I don't know about 4, but uh, you know, is there one of those teams out there? Yeah, I think Marquette is a team to look at. I think they've had a great year. They're twenty six and six, uh thirteen and two in the big east and their you know, their two losses have been to Louisville. Uh I think Bon Schmansky does a fantastic job of kinda of getting teams ready. He did it at Georgia Tech. Uh there's a team right there that, you know, again, I would be a little bit nervous to see uh come first round and, and you know, obviously uh they look to be I, I think in the tournament, you know, um, they they lost in the championship to the Big East, you know, to Louisville, but I see them as being in. So that's a team that, you know, I'd be a little nervous about too. And then, you know, I think the just outside the, you know, how it kind of finishes up is, again, one of these uh, ACC teams, the Miami, North Carolina. Miami and Florida play this week in their final match, uh, or Miami and Florida State play. That will be a tough one. Kentucky, uh, a team that's, you know, right now, I think admittedly sitting on the bubble. They've got all the pieces and had all the pieces all year long. You know, can they put it together in these last weeks here uh, to get it done and uh, get into the tournament and then, you know, move on into the tournament? I think that's the biggest thing. And then the last team I'd probably talk about is St. Mary's. Uh, St. Mary's has had a lot of success throughout the year, you know, kind of beating some teams that, uh, you know, maybe uh, people didn't think they would. And uh, they've kind of steadily, grown, you know, climbed up the rankings and, you know, just outside the uh, uh, top 25. So it's a program that, you know, Rob Browning does a nice job there. And I think uh, they're a team to watch, especially come, you know, selection time to see who is going to have to face them, uh, you know, if they get into the tournament. Yeah, the West is going to be loaded because what happens is after they get done seeding the 16, it pretty much falls into regions. And you're looking at if a San Diego team doesn't get seeded, a St. Mary's team doesn't get seeded, a Pepperdine team doesn't get seeded, um, there could be a couple teams out of the Pac-12. That's going to be tough. The other sleepers, I think, are in the in the Big Ten. You look at what Michigan State and Michigan have done on given weekends, and either one of those teams is going to be seeded. I think they're going to be a real tough team to play in the first round for somebody good. How would it look different? Was seeded? Would you be able to pull these regions out? Would you be able to have a Michigan play out in the West Coast and have a Pepperdine go back and have to play in the Midwest instead of leaving them at home? I mean, you're effectively giving a huge advantage to already decent teams. I wish they do like basketball, because basketball that would happen completely that they move teams around. But in volleyball, it very seldom happens that teams move around. And so what you're looking at is you're looking at a Purdue Midwest region and, uh, you know, Nebraska-Omaha, that's going to feed most of the Midwest. A Texas region's got to feed most of the South. And then you're looking at a Cal region that's got to feed most of the West. And unfortunately, 
it's uh, when you get to back to the last group that's going to end up in Louisville, it's going to be pretty much regionalized because, I mean, I was playing around at Purdue today, and I've got, like, Penn State, Louisville, Florida State, and Florida, potentially in Texas. I've got Texas, SC, Washington, Ohio State, and I've got Nebraska, UCLA, Oregon, Minnesota, Kansas all together. So, I mean, it's like, you know, you're looking in the West, and I've got Stanford, Oregon, BYU, and Hawaii all together, just playing around off of the seeds and off of the brackets. And so it, it does get very regionalized, and the NCAA will move a team here or there to save money, and unfortunately volleyball isn't a big money-making sport right now. Well, you know, yeah. one of the things that I would like to see done, uh, maybe your show, Kevin, could be the platform for this, is is once Sunday's announcement come out and we see the pairings and we see, you know, like Mike said, the regionalization of it, I would like to take all 64 teams, rank them, you know, and you can get three, three or four people and see how different it, it actually looks. Uh, and I think it would be really interesting to see that, uh, and a lot of fun, you know, in, in the sense that, uh, you know, to see is it going to be different, or you know, after everything said and done, it would probably be somewhat similar. And then, uh, but I think it would be an interesting kind of pet project. I know you got a bunch of free time now with your flag football done. Oh yeah, uh, you might want to look <laughs> into that. We're just moving into playoffs, man. I got twice the video. Oh, that's right, playoffs, playoffs, playoffs. What's playoffs? playoffs? I can't even exactly. No, no, I think I think that would be great to do. You have, to, I think, no, Brandon's right. I mean, I think that's great to look at and, and see. And and again, there's a lot more pressure on the NCAA committee because they've been heavily criticized the last two years for pretty much following RPI and not looking at yeah. head-to-head matchups, looking at strength of conferences. And we'll see what kind of adjustments there are because again, I mean, again, this happens Sunday. But the teams you have to look at for adjustments right now is is Hawaii, who's been ranked in the top ten all year, but right now doesn't figure because their conference is so weak to be in the top 16 of RPI. Do they get to be home for the first two? I think that's a big thing to really take a look at. A team like Ohio State that's played as well as anybody the last couple months of the year that are ranked, is ranked 14th, but their last RPI was 22, where they're going to move up and have a chance. And then a team like Kansas that's ranked 7th in RPI going into this last week and are going to win their last two matches, are they really going to be a number 2 or number 3 seed off of RPI when they really haven't beaten anybody that great? Mike, we All get right, Kevin, so every year. It, Hold on, Brandon. We get this discussion every year about the travel restrictions and not seating and so on. I mean, I, I suspect you could hold a bake sale and come up with the money that's the difference between traveling a team uh, 800 miles and traveling a team 1,500 miles because you still got to buy plane tickets. you still got to have hotel uh, rooms paid for. I suspect you could hold a bake sale and get enough money together for that. What, what I'd be more interested in is do you think it c- creates too much work for the committee to have to seed everybody in an environment where, let's be honest, people have accused the committee before of not really knowing what they're doing, and that's why they're relying on RPI. They're not really paying enough attention. And in God, if you had to seat all 64, you would really have to pay attention then. I think the committee pays attention and knows. I think their hands are tied, though, a lot of ways. Okay. Let's get it done. Uh, I'm putting it on Mike and myself. We'll get one more person. We'll seat all 64. And we'll have it ready for uh, next Monday's phone call. How about that? Hey, I like it. I like any time people volunteer to make this show better, and you just did. Thank you, Brandon Rosenthal. Uh, I need one more person. So you can you can tell me who I need to include. I'll get with Mike and this other person. We'll seed between the three of us, seed 64, and put them in place, and then I'll give it to you, and you can do whatever you want with it. 
All right, we'll have a good rousing discussion about it then. We'll figure that out. That sounds like a good idea. Mike, you already gave us two UCLA matches that you're looking for. What else do you think could be an impact match this final week? I I think what you're looking at right now is teams playing for seeds. So I think what you have to look at is the West Coast Conference. San Diego, who beat BYU last week, BYU, they need to win their matches. I think you're looking at, you know, a couple other places in the Big Big Ten. You're looking to see if, you know, Ohio State can win out – and they get a chance to potentially be a top 16. I think I think it's more instead of looking at matches, it's more teams and having to finish strong when the NCAA looks at the last 10 matches that they've played and are you going to win on the last weekend. I mean, like if a UCLA team could really hurt themselves, they lost to Stanford, they could lose to Oregon tomorrow, they could lose to USC. If you have three losses going to the NCAA tournament, that will drop UCLA all the way down to a three. SC, on the other hand, by winning against Stanford and Cal, if they beat UCLA, they can move themselves all the way up to number one seed potentially. So those are the kind of things I think you have to really look at more than matches. You have to look at like teams and them finishing strong. Is Pepperdine definitely in? I mean, Pepperdine's 8-8 eight eight in the West Coast Conference. I know they're not I don't they're on think the they're definitely in. No, I think they're definitely on the bubble because they've had a you know some, that conference is strong but not considered super strong, and they've had some issues. And what you have to look at is you go back and you look at RPI, and that has a big factor on things in terms of that conference. And they lost twice to Loyola Marymount. Loyola Marymount is 48th in RPI. Pepperdine's only 36. So you figure on paper they're going to get in, but it's it's right in the border. I mean they're sitting you know right in the border with things. And on the heels of what Mike just said, I mean, <clears throat> coming down the stretch, they lost four of their last five conference matches, you know. Uh, so, and yeah, I would imagine. That they think that what you did recently matters. They've, I've actually heard that before, that what's happened recently has more weight. Yeah, yeah I mean, that conference is real strong, and they should get four teams in the NCAA tournament, maybe five. I mean, they're... Their, their, their RPI is very, very good, but then I think you have to go back and you have to look a lot at the non-conference matches and who they played and what they did because the NCAA goes all the way back to the last week of August and looks at how you start off the season. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, that's another key. He talked about four or five. Here's one, you know, Pepperdine at 8-8 eight and eight is right behind Santa Clara, so now if they're going to look at Pepperdine, they've got to look at Santa Clara. Santa Clara's right uh, and, with them in RPI. Yeah, and so it's going to be a tough decision. You know, do they take one or do they take them both? Or do they say, hey, listen, they had their chances and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll just take three. So I think that uh, that whole conference will be an interesting thing to watch uh, come Sunday. Somebody was asking that on Volley Talk just this week about taking someone who is lower placed in a conference than a team that makes the the tournament. So you take a team that's number three and leave out the team that's number two. In some cases, in conferences, Pepperdine perhaps setting up that type of situation if you take Pepperdine on uh, name recognition or some other reason over Santa Clara. It's possible. I mean, I mean, looking at a team like the team may not get in, it's ranked in the top 40 of RPI is Cal Berkeley because they had injuries and they had non-conference losses. They're going to finish the season at 500 or one match under, and I think the rule is you have to be one match above 500, Brent. Is that correct? That is correct. And they're not they're not going to do that. They're 14 and 14, and they finish with Utah and Stanford. So likely to finish 15 and 15, and that's not going to get them in the tournament. Even though they have they have a good enough RPI and, and they're in the middle of the Pac-12 conference, the best conference, they're not going to get in. Yeah, I mean, and that's you know, again, you talk about teams that obviously Illinois is one of those teams that had such a great year last year, and and. Uh, I don't want to say struggle, but had their had their challenges this year. Uh, you know, it's interesting to kind of take a look at from year to year uh, how many teams. And I think it, it, 
bodes well for the teams that continue to repeat and, and go deep and determine how hard it really is to do that on a yearly basis. It really is. Brandon, important matches this week. Anything else? I got to I, I look at uh, the Big Ten. Michigan goes to Michigan State and to Ohio State on the flip side of that Michigan-Michigan State rivalry. Obviously, uh the uh, Big Blue will take on Sparty on, uh, I believe, Wednesday here, and then uh, they finish up with Penn State. So I think, uh, like Mike said earlier, that's going to be key to uh, what happens in the Big Ten. Right, exactly. I mean, the Ohio State match, Ohio State can win both this weekend. I think they deserve a top 16 seed. Gentlemen, thanks very much. We'll look forward to your tournament fields of 64 coming up on Monday. I can't wait. Thanks, Bart Scott. Thanks, Mike. Brandon, appreciate you. Appreciate you. <laughs> See you later. Bye-bye. Playoff time. Can't wait. Playoffs? Playoffs? I tell you what, I host a show on Fridays, as everyone knows, on Fox Sports West here, and we're in the middle of playoffs. And I cannot say playoffs without – even when I'm not trying to do it, the beginning of it always has a little bit of playoffs. I mean, it's, it's always got a little bit of that in it. It's always good to hear. Everybody's getting fired up at that time of year. Yeah, I mean, all those quotes. Can't wait. Playoffs. You play to win the game. <laughs> We're talking about practice. Practice. <laughs> uh, endless. It's endless, I tell you. It is endless. And you know what's weird? Some some guy from 707 or what gal is calling. Oh, there we go. Oh. Sorry, I can now I can tell how just how far you folks on the chat board are behind. If you're not on the show, you're behind about 15 seconds. Yeah. All right, Jay. Yeah. I'm not sure what else to do here. Well, I'm not sure what else to talk about. I mean, we've the chat board is kind of quiet right now. They're all hanging out, listening to stuff, and you know, I I, I don't know. You got any other yeah. good volleyball topics? You know, I, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, what's going on this week? It's it's all about Thanksgiving and what we're all thankful for. So let's let's take a moment, shall we, and let's talk about the things that we are thankful for. Barney, what 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 are some things that you're thankful for? What am I thankful for? This is Napa Valley, Sebastopol. My God, seven oh seven. Who could that be? I'm thankful for, for anyone that would take the time to call the show. So. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what am I thankful for? I, I honestly, I'm thankful for my family and and friends out here. Uh, just got a great thing going uh, with the wife and then the boys, and uh, thankful for all the new work that I've been able to do this fall. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. It's been uh, at times a grind, like anything else uh, that you love and do a lot. Sometimes it just uh, it's taken up a lot of time, and it's been that, but it's been a lot of fun. And about to embark on my last trip until uh, we get to final four. That'll happen tomorrow, so I'll be at Oregon State at Pullman. That should be a lot of fun to go to both those places and, and see those matches leading on into Thanksgiving and playoff time. And, uh, awesome. I'm thankful for all, all those things. Awesome. Awesome. I'm, uh, I am thankful uh, that uh, it's not snowing yet, uh, even though it's cold. And it's getting there. I'm sure someday soon it's going to happen. I'm thankful that my father-in-law is safely here and having a great time with us. I'm thankful for my family and friends, of course. I'm always thankful to be on the show. It's always a good vehicle and, and a good time to be on. Uh, I am thankful that uh, Karch Karai is taking over for the women's 
um, the women's national team job. I think he's going to do a great job at them. Have we heard anything about who his assistant will be? Uh, no, we have not. And actually, I can bring up one thing I'm not thankful for, and that is the coaching situation for the men. That still is undecided. Uh, it's unfortunate, isn't it? Do we, do we have any names that are being tossed around? I know there's three or four guys that have been brought into the mix, but I'm not sure if that's public knowledge yet. Did uh, Did you get uh, your denial letter yet, Jay? <laughs> I didn't even, they didn't even take the time to write me a letter. I wrote an email, and, and Doug responded with, ha, ha, ha. So, uh, yeah, I know. I, my, cool. <laughs> yeah, my, my bid was, was quickly rejected. I think there are a few other people in front. Uh, can, I, can I make some, not suggestions, but let me, let me tell you who I'd like to see. I think that would be a good way to put it. Yeah, let's do I'd, it. Li- I'd like to see Ron Larson back in the mix. I'd like to see uh, Rick McLaughlin in that mix. Uh, I, I'd like to see, uh, you know, maybe Sean Patchell somewhere in that mix. I think he's somebody who could do some good things with that team. Whether in a head coaching position, uh, I'm not sure about that, but assistant coach for sure. Um, those are some people that I'd like to see. But I'd like to see Ronnie get back in there. I think he did some nice things. Okay. Yeah. yeah I've, heard, I've heard Sean Patchell's name. Yep. Uh, I, I wonder about the age situation for Sean. Sure. I wonder if he's old enough. Uh, I've heard Ron Larson's name and people being very complimentary of Ron. Uh, also concerns about whether Ron could manage the, the people side of the thing. I mean, obviously he knows the sport. Did a great job in 08 when Hugh was out and Ron had to take over for a substantial portion of that tournament. Did a fantastic job, admirable job. And I think wanted to be, wanted to, to be in the conversation for this past quad. And, and did not uh, get the job for whatever reason. I don't know that he's interested. Last time I talked to him, he was not interested. Uh, I, I've heard news that maybe a foreigner, maybe you get a foreign coach, which could no be... No way. No way. Uh, I, I honestly, at this point, I don't even know that I care because I can't think of a great name. I cannot think of a name that I go, yes, that's the guy you have to have. Well, you can. It's just well, I, a, that's John Sparrow. Yeah, that, that ship already sailed. So I, I can't think of someone that I, I really want in that job, that I would say, yes, let's get him, do whatever you have to do to get him, make it happen, uh, DPB. That's Douglas P. Beal. <laughs> so I don't, without that driving me, what I really want is just get the job, get the decision made. And yeah, to say hurry, wrong. but I mean, make the decision you think is right, but make the decision. Get somebody in there for crying out loud. Um, odds on it's only a four-year job in that uh, Spira gets a chance to come back and take it in four years, or is it an eight-year job and then Spira comes back out? It's an eight-year job. Somebody suggested to me, someone who uh, could be in the know, but I don't know, don't know that he is, uh, that Spira would somehow a year and a half out come and be the head coach this time huh. around. Huh. A year and a half out. Yeah, I don't see that happening. I mean, I know John can affect change quickly and stuff, but it's just a disservice to whoever you have in there. Well, so what I was going to say is who would take the job then in the in the first three, two and a half years? That would not be uh, very fun. No, nobody would and nobody should. Yeah. And it would be a disservice to the person that was there unless the results were terrible. And hopefully they're not. But you're already putting the person behind the eight ball the same way Alan Knight was put behind the eight ball. And it took Alan Knight because of his inexperience, I mean, three and a half years to recover. Yeah, I, I I agree with that, and I you know I, again I comment on your international thing. I just don't think 
out of all the, the programs out there in the world, I mean, unless you were to get, um, you know, somebody from Russia or Brazil, I just don't think anybody is at the caliber that we need, to be honest with you. I can't see a no-name coach coming in here uh, that, you know, the, the players might know, but nobody else knows. You know, USA Volleyball is, uh, you know, it's, it's a heralded position. And it's, it's something that people in America look up to. And, you know, if the person's not approachable, if there's somebody that, that's not uh, well-known or well-recognized, I just don't, I don't see that being a positive. So that's, this is my thought. Yeah. You got to get somebody in that job now. You yeah. just get somebody in there for crying out loud, give them some lead time. Cause we're, we're basically already to December. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It's, it's so get it done. The new year, get it done, Doug Beal. So we can be thankful for it for uh, maybe the new year. That would be nice. Yes, yes. All right, Jake. Thanks very much for uh, being a part of the program today, and thanks to everyone for tuning in. We sure appreciate you being a part of the Net Live. We will have another show for you next week. Jeremy hopefully will be healthy, and we're looking to book some great guests. Of course, we will have the tournament field of 64 already out. We'll have Selection Sunday having occurred, so we'll have great discussion, I'm sure, about Division One, the pods, the hosting, who got the advantage, who should have gotten in, who shouldn't have gotten in. That will definitely dominate a lot of our conversation. And, and we are lining up guests for the, the winter time. We're working on some good stuff with USAV Beach. We'll have them on to talk about some of the initiatives that are happening with the FIVB and with the Cuervo Tour and, and the State of Beach Volleyball and the national team programming. A lot of interesting stuff there. We'll have that coming up for you after the Division One part of uh, NCAA con- concludes in December. <laughs> we'll also have... Stuff from grassroots. You can learn a little bit about grassroots and John Kessel uh, out there at USA Volleyball. And, and we'll continue to try and bring you some some interesting outside-of-the-box type stuff. We, we don't want to always get stuck with the same topics here on the Net Live. So if you have a suggestion or a desire, email us. We love emails. Even if we don't always respond to them, we do read them all. The Net Live at gmail.com. Thanks to everyone who's emailed there. And uh, Steve Crandall, I think it was, sent us uh, some pictures from back east in the devastation back there people sound like they're recovering but it's going to be a tough winter this year for lots of folks back there so uh, hopefully they have a a little bit to be thankful for and uh, can get their lives put back together jay thanks very much appreciate you being here thanks barney always appreciate it we'll see you guys soon all right that's the net live on a monday all done we'll see you folks next week